listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Michelle. Welcome to episode 66 of Belaboured. We are here recording this the day after the announcement came that there would be no indictment in the case of Darren Wilson, the Ferguson police officer who shot Michael Brown. Um, as the community is protesting once again, as people around the country have shut down highways and gathered on the steps of the Supreme Court to demand justice, we want to note that the labor movement, too, has spoken out in solidarity with Brown's family. The AFL-CIO and other unions have issued statements of support. And perhaps related to our theme for today's show, there has been a call to boycott Black Friday as a statement of solidarity with the families and in protest against a country in, and a system in which black people are killed with impunity. There are hashtags for that. It is hashtag not one dime and hashtag boycott Black Friday. There's an interesting connection there with the actions that are already planned for this Black Friday, which we will be discussing on today's show. And in other uh news that kind of uh, made waves around the country. This past couple of weeks, uh, Obama made his big announcement on executive action on immigration uh, last week, and he announced that he would uh, issue an executive action that would technically shield several million undocumented people uh, from deportation if they meet various criteria. And primarily, this move is focused on parents of immigrants' children who have a legal status. So um, they would either be citizens of the U.S. or they would be uh, legal permanent residents, uh, also known as green card holders. So basically, um, the parents of children with legal status would be able to apply for a temporary reprieve on deportation. So if this sounds like a very um, half measure, it is. And yet it has managed to incense, uh, you know, all the conservatives in Congress. People are up in arms about this. They're calling it an imperial move, unconstitutional, etc. Meanwhile, some of the mainstream reform groups are hailing it as a big breakthrough and a step towards comprehensive uh, legislation in Congress, which still needs to get done in order to permanently change uh, the immigration system. But for now, you know, many families are, are happy that at the very least, they might be able to apply for a temporary deferral of deportations. This is essentially building on the executive action of 2012 that provided a reprieve for undocumented youth who had arrived as children. So that gave a two-year renewable reprieve on deportation and also allowed them to uh, work legally. And this order will also enable the older immigrants to get work authorization. Um, ironically enough, the youth who formerly benefited from the 2012 action, also known as the documented youth because their program is called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, those youth who got the earlier reprieve their parents will not be getting relief because the only parents who are eligible for this current reprieve are parents of people who already have full legal status. That is not the ones of the temporary legal status that Obama granted in 2012. So it's all basically a big mess. It's also lumped together with a lot of border enforcement measures and a new vow from the Obama administration to uh, crack down on so-called criminal undocumented immigrants, right? So this is how the immigration debate is being spun, sort of more division of the undocumented community, separating supposedly good and deserving immigrants from undeserving criminal immigrants, and it'll go on and on this way. What Obama has done is he has um, managed to adjust the arbitrary dividing line between legal and illegal, uh, mixed it in with a lot of other political shenanigans to sweeten the pot for various lobby groups, and um, and that's what we have. Um, yes, it's a good thing that uh, millions of people will now be spared the brutality of family separation, for the time being at least, but this should not distract anyone serious in the immigration movement from the need to uh, dramatically overhaul our immigration law and change the fundamentally racist uh, structures that undergird our border policies. On a slightly more positive note, 
Um, we've talked a lot about port trucker, port truck drivers on this podcast in the past. Um, I'm somewhat obsessed. This past week saw the biggest strike yet and some wins for port truck drivers at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach in California, where drivers who are misclassified as, quote, independent contractors struck for the right to be considered employees and to join a union. Specifically, that union would be the Teamsters, which has thrown some weight behind organizing port truckers on both coasts. Last year, a Savannah port trucker told me that if all the port truckers in the country went on strike, it would take only three days before every Walmart in the nation would be empty. It seems that the companies that employ the drivers in California were threatened by these ongoing strikes and the use by the drivers, particularly of this strike time, to organize more drivers. Um, All eight companies targeted by the strikes have met with drivers or made plans to meet with the drivers and the union and have signed statements pledging to respect the workers' right to join the union. This is kind of amazing because that doesn't happen very often, as regular Bay Labor listeners will know. Uh, Drivers at those eight companies had been on strike for a combined eight days and had company on the picket lines from Walmart workers, fast food workers, car wash workers, public workers who are part of SEIU Local 721, faith leaders, and other members of their communities. Their picket lines extended from company yards to marine terminals and rail yards. They didn't shut business down entirely, but they certainly made it hard to do. Uh, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti stepped in to help mediate. Strikers were leafleting other drivers and using the visibility of their picket lines to draw other drivers into their movement. Um, and terminal operators reportedly turned away trucks from struck companies to avoid being picketed themselves. The port trucking industry has been emblematic of what neoliberalism has done to jobs. It turned union positions into low-wage gigs where the drivers bear the weight of all the costs of their labor, while major companies pocket the profits and pay a lot of lip service to the idea that drivers are now their own bosses, they're entrepreneurs. So it's really gratifying to see drivers challenging that entire logic, right? This is not just winning a union. This is actually challenging the structure of work at the ports. Um, And they're winning. Uh, David Bensman has a great report from the picket lines up at the Descent website. We will have a link to it on the Belabored page, or you can just go straight to DescentMagazine.org and read it. And uh, it's been about six months since the fast food worker movement began to organize, not just uh, locally, but globally. And now the international wing of the fast food workers movement um, has been sort of taking their message out to uh, different shores and speaking to fast food workers in other countries. A delegation of fast food workers has fanned out to about eight different countries, speaking to workers in cities from Buenos Aires to Tokyo, and they have been learning about how organizing is done over there and um, you know sharing their own experiences. And they've been finding a lot of commonalities across uh, different countries in terms of the struggles that fast food workers face to get a living wage and, and a union. Um, and they've also heard some inspiring stories about fast food workers in places like Denmark, where it can actually be a you know a pretty solid profession. You can. Um, have a, a job serving fast food and um, you know earn a living wage, get really good benefits, health coverage, and the support of a strong union. And of course, um, you know none of that stuff came out of some sort of corporate noblesse oblige. It actually came out of um, longstanding efforts by workers and organized labor to uh, push for better conditions. So um, workers from Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York City uh, got a lot of those insights shared some of their own, and um, the tour was uh, coordinated with the help of the International Union of Food, Agriculture, Hotel, Restaurant, Catering, and Allied Workers Associations, also known as the IUF, uh, partnering with a bunch of local unions. And um, I have a report on this at The Nation, uh, but uh, it sort of recounts some of the experiences they encountered there from other fast food workers. And it kind of shows where uh, the U.S. workers are in terms of pushing for their rights and what they can aspire to and also um, how they can help workers in other countries you know, recognize and you know solidarity and, and sharing that struggle. And uh, Massimo Frattini of the uh, IUF issued a statement that that announced that their agenda now was to form a global labor organization representing fast food workers. And the mobilization of the U.S. workers, he noted, offers an opportunity to transform the industry in many parts of the world. Workers of the world unite. <laughs> fast food workers of the world unite. Yeah. Yeah, right. Speaking of, well, not really speaking of anything related at all. <laughs> no segue um, there. Sorry. 
No segue at all. Um, We may, in fact, though, have an answer to the question of just how bad does an executive have to be to get indicted for his misdeeds? Um, And that answer seems to be sort of cartoon villain level awful. Or at least that's the indication we get from the fact that Don Blankenship, the former CEO of Massey Energy, was finally indicted four years after his company's little big branch mine exploded and killed 29 miners. Uh, the four-count indictment alleges that Blankenship, quote, conspired to commit and cause routine violations of mandatory federal mine safety standards in order to, quote, produce more coal, avoid the costs of following safety laws, and make more money. The 43-page indictment alleges, among other things, that the mine was cited 835 times in a less than two-year period. Um, That was about one a day. Um, That the roof of the mine was caving in and the company was aware of it for almost a month before doing anything about it. That Blankenship personally told the company to, quote, run some coal and worry about ventilation issues some other time and other horrors. He actually sent a memo to executives telling them, quote, your core job is to make money. I'm looking to make an example out of somebody, and I don't mean embarrassment. Massey's non-union miners were under pressure constantly to produce more, diverted from safety housekeeping requirements like sweeping up coal dust to produce more coal all the time. And according to the indictment, Blankenship was intimately involved with all of these decisions, overseeing every detail of the mine down to minor pay raises personally. And all of this concern about money, despite the fact that the mine was wildly profitable. The Massey had about $390 million on hand in the weeks leading up to the explosion, which probably could have covered some safety precautions that would have kept those 29 miners alive. Blankenship faces 31 years in prison, which would be very surprising if he ends up serving a day of it. But I'm going to let the last word on this go to West Virginia Senator Jay Rockefeller, who told reporters, quote, as Blankenship goes to trial, he will be treated far fairer and with more dignity than he ever treated the minors he employed. And frankly, it's more than he deserves. The justice system actually worked for once. Well, well, getting an indictment. It is really, really depressing, going back to Ferguson as well, that just an indictment of a powerful white man is a surprising thing to us. Well, in the lead up to Black Friday, uh, we have prepared some Walmart specials for you. (laughs) And um, we are uh, starting off with a little bit of an interview with Frank Clemente. He is executive director of Americans for Tax Fairness. And they came out with um, a rather scathing analysis of uh, Walmart's tax bill, um, or actually the tax bills that they don't pay because they have managed to figure out all sorts of ingenious ways to get the most awesome deals for themselves uh, and uh, pay those low, low tax rates. And uh, it turns out they are working a variety of federal loopholes as well as, it seems, um, harboring many of their profits offshore using some very creative accounting. Um, it's all adding up to a pretty hefty, um, you know, sort of a you know, back taxes bill, I guess you could say, if they actually paid their fair share. Um, they calculate uh, that uh, Walmart is effectively avoiding $1 billion in taxes per year through federal loopholes. And um, they're actually doing what many multinationals do as well, which is, um, again, you know, getting those fancy offshore accounts and finding various uh, tax havens um, and exercising a gaping loophole known as a deferral. So basically, this means that they can defer payments on those untaxed profits until they, well, pretty much whenever they feel like paying, which might be never. But um, they're actually uh, pushing Congress right now for an even bigger tax holiday by um, making it even easier to offshore um, taxable revenue and um, transforming the tax system to something known as a territorial system in which corporations, multinational companies mainly, huge multinationals like Walmart, have pretty much free reign to uh, park 
their profits and their assets elsewhere, far, far away from the U.S. Treasury. So uh, here's Frank Clemente talking about the consequences of that for public spending in the United States, for uh, critical public programs, and basically for things that would go to the people who are struggling right now just to pay the bills. And yes, the people who are flocking to Walmart this Black Friday, hoping to get the best deal possible on their holiday shopping because um, they're watching every penny. I think what was surprising to us is we basically assumed that Walmart wasn't gaming the system, that they were using their offshore investments in a you know, quote-unquote legitimate way. In other words, they were accumulating money offshore because they were expanding offshore and they were growing their business in these countries. And uh, you know, if they're doing that, that's very different than if they're playing a shell game with their money. I think what was unique about this finding is that, you know, in the same period of time that their investments offshore were roughly between four and five billion dollars a year, they flatlined their investments offshore. They doubled how much they were keeping offshore shielded from income taxes. And that says to us that something is going on that's different than we thought, that they are either they're going to build up their offshore cash profits that are untaxed because they think that they might be able to get a repatriation holiday down the road, if you know what that is, where you can bring the the cash back at a great discount. Uh, As you probably are aware, there's a big push. There's $2 trillion in offshore profits that are untaxed that corporations want to bring back as part of tax reform, and they want to bring back at at a 5%, 6% tax rate rather than a 35% tax rate. Basically, they'd get a tax holiday. They did it once before back in 2004. Back then, we had about $800 billion sitting offshore. They brought back about $300 billion at a 5% tax rate. Now, they've got $2 trillion sitting offshore. So the money has grown exponentially since the last one over the last decade. We believe that's because, A, they're doing more business offshore. B, they've gotten better at making it look like their profits are being generated offshore rather than generating here in America. And three, because they think that they could get another repatriation tax holiday, again, where they pay pennies on the dollar. So it looks like something's going on there. If you can just outline for me exactly how the lobbying issue and and the actual corporate campaign spending, how might that actually affect the legislation in this upcoming session? The way we look at it is the Republicans, their economic agenda always revolves around less government and less taxes. And I guess I would add cutting government spending. And so we think that those will be their priorities. The tax reform will be a big priority of theirs. They've already said it will. I think the question is whether or not it can get passed. Business will be pushing them very hard to promote tax reform that is in their interests as opposed to in the interests of the rest of us. And, you know, if if they're following their pattern, it's been promoting or pushing for a cut in corporate taxes that's about a 30% tax cut. So it's very substantial. It loses huge amounts of money, and the Republicans have never said how will they uh, replace that money. Typically, they call for uh, reducing domestic spending by uh, about 2 to $3 trillion over the next 10 years. And they also typically call for tax changes that are worth another $3 trillion, about a trillion dollars on the corporate side, a little bit more, and a couple of trillion dollars on the individual side. And so there are budgets that basically are about shrinking what the government does. And that means making no investments. It means it actually means less than that. It means taking money away from things that are both services that support people in need, but also services that support uh, middle-class Americans as well. And that was Frank Clementi of Americans for Tax Fairness talking about Walmart's tax dodging. Um, To tell us more about what's going on at Walmart this week, which, of course, it is now going to be the third annual Our Walmart Black Friday extravaganza, um, we will talk to Martha Sellers, who works at the Paramount California Walmart and is a three-year member of the Our Walmart organization. She joins us to talk about last week's sit-down strikes in California Walmarts, the plans for Black Friday, the labor history that Our Walmart is consciously invoking, and why she'll never watch another Tom Cruise movie. Yeah, I guess I want to start with talking about um, the strikes that took place last week in in California. Um, 
you were a part of all that, I understand? Yes, I was. Can you um, – yeah, I would love to hear about it, um, about how planning went on for that, how you decided that, that sit-down strikes were going to be the action that was taken, and then I would love to hear about how it felt to, to do it. It looked really impressive from, from my end of the Internet. The planning stages were uh, kind of nerve-wracking because we didn't know what to expect, and we had – well, if they do this, we'll do this. If they do this, we'll do this. <laughs> right. So we tried to come up with all the different uh, what-ifs. And so that was really nerve-wracking, trying to figure out what they would do. Yeah. But that once you and – how, and how we were going to get uh, – sneak us all in. How, how do I say that? Sneak us all in. So yeah. once we got in – and the, the planning of get us, getting us in unnoticed was, you know, one at a time, two at a time. Just go in like you're shopping, mull around the store, act like you're shopping, but you're not. But stay within earshot so you can hear. <laughs> and then once you hear the call, then then this is the signal to do this. And we practiced it. That was yeah. that was the key. We practiced it. So we knew the call to, to come together. We knew the call to sit down. And we we were prepared for that because we practiced it. The looks on management's face was just uh, priceless. (laughs) Priceless. They were were absolutely floored. They had no clue what to do. We, We took the power away from them. We sat in Crenshaw for two hours. It was absolutely amazing. Customers, the only one that said, I hope you guys know what you're doing. There's a thousand out there that will take your job. One out of hundreds of customers that walked by during that two-hour period in Crenshaw. It was inspiring. I think one of the things that that resonated with people like me who are are kind of labor history nerds was the, you know, the the symbolism of a a sit-down strike. Yeah, can you tell me a little bit about how the decision came about to take that kind of action? We discussed what to do, what to do different. Yeah. And that came up because of the history books. Right. It didn't yeah. slow down the business, let me say that. Right. At Woolworths, they shut down the counter and there was no transactions going on. That we did not do. Yeah. But that was not the purpose. The purpose was because to call attention to our plight and, and customer support and really just mess with management. <laughs> and it really did that. And it really did that when you see Ohio managers standing up checking IDs. They are blocking doors and checking everybody's ID before they, they let them in the door. Now, you know we impacted them when that happens. I understand one of the, the locations in California was this, the place where the first strikes happened, the first Walmart strikes happened two years ago. Yes. Was that a Pico Rivera? Yes. Yeah. Is that a special significance? Well, part of the significance of that was they had just in that store had uh, terminated three our mm-hmm. Walmart members. Mm-hmm. One a couple of weeks prior to the other two, and the other two were. I, it's like it's retaliation all over again, and here we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let's do this. Let's do this. And while we were in Crenshaw or during that period of time, that Pico Rivera store manager held a meeting and told mm-hmm. his employees, if anybody comes in here to do that and sits down on the floor, I'm going to have all of them arrested. Of course, we all know that didn't happen. We all got it. <laughs> now, the resting the, the came outside when we took it to the street. And, again, that's public awareness. And, and it's mm-hmm. just the awesome and empowering and the support just the worker support, you know. If people don't understand how one company has such a large impact on all the workers and all the workforce, yeah. it retail to manufacturing and manufacturing overseas, the trucking industry for yeah. bringing it here. Walmart's this giant global octopus that just has its tentacles in every aspect of everything. And when and when I when I hear oh just get another job, it just infuriates me because sooner or later it's going to affect them too. They don't see yeah. the importance of it. 
Yeah, I understand you, you guys, um, some of you joined the port truckers on, on their picket lines this week or last week, too. Yes, I did. <laughs> oh, yes, we did. <laughs> yeah. How was that? I love seeing the, the line of trucks waiting to go in, waiting to yeah. go in. And I'm wondering how much of Walmart's sales specials are sitting on that dock not being able to be get into stores and how many how mad are customers gonna be when they can't get that sale item that Walmart's supposed to have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um so how long have you been involved in our Walmart? I've been involved a little over three years. Wow, yeah. Tell me how you got involved. Was there a particular thing that happened that made you interested or that must have made you one of the very first people, huh? My coworker uh, was very active in, in our Walmart and he mm-hmm. was talking to me. But when he was talking to me, I wasn't hearing him. And the reason I wasn't hearing him is my husband had passed away. Mm-hmm. And I was really, I was full of grief. I was not in my right head. I finally went through grief counseling and got my head back 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 on straight. I don't know how to explain that I was I just wasn't myself. I couldn't deal with I, I I just I was not functioning. I was completely shut down. I went to work every day and I did my job but I wasn't there. It wasn't me. I was just going through the motions. And during that same period of grief, financially, I was very strapped. Mm-hmm. With losing him, I lost his income. Right. And at that same time, Walmart kept continued to cut my hours. Yeah. And through grief counseling, I I got better. I got well. Uh, let's call it well. Yeah. And I was get angry and hungry and. When I'd go to my management team and I'd ask them for more hours, they would laugh at me and say, we can't give you any more. Just work your schedule. Just deal with it. And with this snickering, like, ha-ha, you know. And it, and it hurt. It, it, it hurt to the point that I'm so hungry at this point that I'm. I, if I have to bend over and pick something off, it, off the floor, I'm, a, I'm close to passing out because I'm, I get so dizzy. And that is demoralizing. I yeah. felt so trapped and so, uh, this is so wrong yeah. on on so many levels of humanity. And I joined and got involved, and here I am this many years later. Yeah. And, in, and and I, I didn't know at, at first, I didn't realize that it was, these kind of things were happening in every store where management just don't care. They they just stomp on you and when you're when you're down and out it's like they kick you in the gut one more time. It's it's oh. the sense of uselessness comes over you and I, I I and and I couldn't do I couldn't deal with it anymore. I had to say Enough is enough. I'm human, and I I want more than this. And as far as I'm concerned, there is no reason that Walmart can't pay its employees better and get every one of them off of government assistance of all forms, whether it's housing, food assistance, medical assistance. There is no reason Walmart can't do better by its employees. And, And in doing so, it will do better for the economy. Throughout the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. And I will not stop this battle until they do that. This is a long fight. It's a long, hard fight. But I'm um, in it until they do. Good. Good. Um, tell me about the first time. When was the first time that you went out on strike? I think the first PICO strike, I was there, but it was my day off. So I I was actually on strike, but I it was my day off. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It it was for protection more than a strike day. My first strike was in front of my store two years ago when nine people were arrested. Yeah. 
and I was one of them. Tell me, um, how do you feel like the movement has been growing in the last couple of years since those first strikes? I know that some of my coworkers are so fearful, they are willing just to let me to take all the risk. They really want to see change. They'll sign anything I want them to sign, but they will not step out the door and say, this is, needs to change. I, I'm having a hard time with with conveying that message that we must stick together or this will not happen. Yeah. Other stores are not having that problem. And part of that is my entire management team has been changed. Mm-hmm. And that has not been an accident. Walmart did that careful planning. And we have a manager now that is actually promoting from within Patting people on the back. If you have an issue, you go to them and they fix it right now. Mm-hmm. So they, they're seeing this small picture of, well, it's okay at my store. I'm getting yeah. my hours. They don't see the larger picture where it's not just your store. It's not just you. It's Walmart employees combined. Yeah. And it's like they have that me attitude, not Walmart attitude. <laughs> I have to switch gears here and say, but what if what happens when this management team is gone? We're right back right. where we were because all of this good stuff will stop. Yeah, it's very interesting. I hear this a lot from people who've been involved in the strikes that you know there have been some changes at their store, but that the big problems are still still there. The victories that we have had with all of our actions, is the respect the bump where Walmart gives pregnant women that extra bathroom break because they have to. I mean, it's a (laughs) decent thing to do because before they wouldn't. They would just make them work and, and women were losing children. Because of the hour things, now when you clock in, there's a little special place where you can see if there's a more hours available, and you mm-hmm. could click on there and request those hours. So if you're, in, if they cut your hours, you can request them. I have never used that as of yet because now I'm getting my hours back. At first yeah. I wasn't. Now I am. Right. And I keep asking people, are you using it? You know, are you using it? Because I can't use it to get overtime. Yeah. They won't give you overtime with it, but they'll give you your hours with it. But usually it's a different department, different shift, or overnight shift, and I've never worked overnight. So it's mm-hmm. like I always check on them to see what they are. So yeah. people that really need those hours and need the money, they they can click on them and request those hours, mm-hmm. which that is an improvement because then you don't have to beg for hours. You can just ask for them in the system. Yeah. So that's a victory. In California only, we had a petition going for improving the sick time policy. Well, the governor signed in the bill that every part-time worker has three paid sick days a year. I held a a meeting with my district manager and asked him, if you're going to revamp the sick time for part-time in California, why don't you use that three days that California has for all of your Walmart stores? That would improve all your workers throughout the country to to help them with sick family members, sick children, or if they get sick themselves. Right. And he was, like, in shock that I thought of it, and he didn't think of it first. <laughs> I'm still waiting to hear back from him, and it's been long enough I need to, to to get in touch with him because that comes in effect the first of the year. Mm-hmm. I just want to give him a gentle nudge in the right direction because that would be a huge thing for all all Walmart workers. It's not enough, but at least it's something. So that in California, it's a victory for three days. But wouldn't it be awesome if they actually implemented that for all Walmart workers throughout the country? That would be huge. So several victories we've had. And... We've had setbacks because we've had the firings illegally and retaliation, the write-ups. But because they do it in such a bad way, it just fuels the fire in the store it was happened in. It's like one of these days I know they're going to try and get me. It's 
it's written in the in the stars. It's just the Walmart being Walmart. So when they fire me, my coworkers will say they'll either get mad and stand up for me, or they'll just lay down and say, "Well, now no one's fighting for us. Maybe we're going to have to fight for ourselves." Mm-hmm. Yeah. And either way it goes, I'm okay with that because they'll stand up for themselves, and that will empower them. So. Tell me about what the plans are for this Black Friday. Starting noon on Thanksgiving, we are having, I believe, 12 Mm -hmm. fasters. We were going to set a beautiful table with no food and represent the starving starvation wages Walmart pays. Mm -hmm. And 12 people were going to fast from noon to noon, noon from Thanksgiving to noon Black Friday. And during Black Friday's action, we will, of course, feed them and break bread with the community. That's nice. It reminds me of uh, uh, Cesar Chavez and the farm workers. We're we're learning a lot from history and repeating some of those things. So tell me, you you said that this is a long fight and that you're in it until the end. Tell me what winning looks like to you. Winning is where every employee has... A livable wage, a true livable wage, hours that they can uh, adjust. You know, I don't want to say go union because that's not what this is all about. This is Mm -hmm. making Walmart a great place to work. And I don't know why they want to fight that so badly because they could so easily. We all love our jobs. But when one person is taking care of three departments, we, we want a fully staffed store. You work in Walmart every day and you hear the customers' complaints daily. Daily. It's horrible. They want the registers open. They want somebody on the floor that can help them and knowledgeable. The workload is just being doubled and tripled and doubled and tripled again. And now we have this great manager that's saying, thank you, you're doing a great job. Oh, and here's more work to do. So the problem really hasn't been solved. It's just being nicer about it. Right. They don't come back and say, why aren't you done? We're going to write you up for this. Right. (laughs) Right. So my victory would be fully staffed stores. Yeah. A decent pay wage for everyone, not just the new hires, but for everyone. I'm making 1380 now after my last raise, and I've been there 11 years. Yeah. That's not enough to live on. Yeah. And then pay your medical and your dental and anything in 401k and 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 do the profit sharing because they want you to. I mean, that's your retirement. Right. So if they want you to put money into it and they want you to invest, but they're taking that out of that, you don't see it. But that's for my retirement. If I was to not do that, I'd have more money in my pocket. But what would I have for retirement? Nothing. Yeah. So if they want us to live and survive and have a good life and a good retirement, they need to pay more. And they need to yeah. provide that. And they could easily. Because people are not going to stop shopping Walmart. Yeah. And and whether you're Stater Brothers or Vaughn's or Ralph's or any other grocery store, Walmart affects how they treat their workers. I know that's hard to believe, but those are all unions, and it's it's affecting them. Well, Walmart gets away with with paying those. We can do it, too. Well, why are we bringing down the economy instead of raising the economy? Their new model of part-time temporary work, you have no job. You have no job security. You have no medical. You have no retirement. You have nothing. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm 57 years old. I have 11 years at Walmart. I have no clue what's in my profit sharing. I, I should know and I don't. You know, when the stock market takes a hit, we take a hit. Walmart don't take a hit. We take the biggest hit because that's our retirement. Right. They're making money handle with it no matter what. But we have no say as to what they invest in. Right. How it's 
invested, what what it's invested in. And I don't like that. Yeah. I would like some kind of voice and then say, no, I want it, I want it here. Mm-hmm. I want it here. Have you been to the, the shareholder meeting in, in Arkansas? I was there once. Yes. Yeah. How is that? How is that? I was there the year uh, Tom Cruise did it. That was last, not last year, two years ago now in June. Yeah. And his first statement was, well, Walmart's such a great job company to work for, and look what they do for the working women. And that was several months after Walmart settled the class action lawsuit against discriminating against women. There was a total silence in that room, audible inhale of breath. And it's like he's just reading a script Walmart is giving him. He really has no clue what Walmart does. So before you become a spokesman for Walmart or a woman for Walmart, Pay attention to what you're saying, because <laughs> I will never see it another Tom Cruise movie in my life, and I lost all respect for him. It's also kind of funny that they get Tom Cruise to talk about women at Walmart. Exactly. They couldn't find a woman? Yes. Well, maybe a woman would pay more better attention to how women are being treated. Yes. So I I just... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All of that too. <laughs> so I and, and it's like the more the harder Walmart fights, it's like yeah. why are they really fighting? If they really think this is about going union, it's not. Not for me. Mm-hmm. Not for most of my my workers, my my workers, coworkers. But yeah. we do. We deserve to have a, a voice into what they decide, what corporate decides, how it affects our job. They took away part timers. Uh, Healthcare benefits. Well, part timers have kids too. Part timers get sick. What, what are you doing here? You know, why are you doing this? To put them back on government assistance? Our country can't continue paying for Walmart employees. Yeah. Or anybody else's employees. I mean, yeah. we have enough problems in this country without Walmart adding to it. Mm-hmm. That's that's the bottom line. Walmart should be helping, not destroying. This has now become a service country, whether it's retail, medical, fast food. We have very little manufacturing in this country now. So wherever you go, why is it that we need three part-time jobs just to make it? Mm -hmm. That's not the, the American dream. Walmart is destroying the American dream. And that was Walmart associate Martha Sellers talking about her um, campaigning against Walmart this holiday season. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. This is our favorite portion of the show where we get to talk about the things we wish we had written but did not. So, Sarah, Sarah? Descent's own David Bensman has two great pieces being discussed on today's podcast, and both of them actually made me go ARG. I really wish I'd been able to make it to California to join the Port Trucker Strikes. But the other piece I'm calling your attention to here is a long one up at the American Prospect titled The Battle Over Working Time, A Counter-Movement Against Neoliberalism. And Bensman makes the argument that we're in the middle of a growing global movement against neoliberalism itself, where workers and non-workers are not only challenging their individual conditions, but also pushing for broader systemic change in the organization of work and the global economy. Uh, He points to organizing up and down supply chains, like the organizing we've been discussing all day today, to immigrants and landless people's movements, and even to the right-wing populism of groups like the Tea Party that has erupted in certain ways counter to the economic hegemony of Wall Street and global corporations. And he sees working time, in particular, as a key notion in this fight, because one major condition of the kind of capitalism we call neoliberalism has been the fracturing and fragmenting of the workplace and the job as we knew it 
shifting to endless piecework, one-off gigs, and the ongoing workday where you're required to be on your email on your smartphone 24-7 in case your boss should possibly need you in the middle of the night. He writes... I believe that the move towards flexibilization, which is at the same time a move for greater corporate control of work, is also in conflict with a long-term trend that is changing the way people conceptualize who they are and what they want, in other words, their identity. This change has been emerging over a long time. People, he argues, are now understanding themselves beyond work, in part because the Great Recession, or what he calls the Lesser Depression of the last few years, has made it less likely that we, especially young people, will even have a full-time job, career, by which to define ourselves. This movement, he notes, is not about going back to some imagined past where everything was wonderful because it wasn't wonderful for a large amount of people, ever. Instead, he argues it's going to shape a new future. Quote, an important consequence of this will be that the counter-movement will not be demanding a return to the standard employment relationship. That relationship, for all its virtues, was sexist, authoritarian, and inimical to workers' desire for individuality, creativity, and self-expression. The new work relationship will the, that will emerge as the counter-movement presses for new social control will be different. The employment and labor laws will have to be changed to meet the demands of new technologies, new cultural values, new consumer demands, and changing economic realities, including global labor markets, global product markets, global supply chains, and global governance movements and institutions. Working time, he argues, is key to all of these demands because it is about workers taking back control over their lives, calling for the right to their own time, and as we noted in relation to the port truckers, challenging the way that work has been fragmented and that it has both sort of been broken up into tiny little bits and also enlarged until it takes over your entire life. So when we see demands for paid sick days, when we see demands for fair scheduling, when we see demands for less work, for holidays off, we're seeing the beginnings and the edges of a movement that actually is calling for people's control over their own time, which is as he argues, and as I would agree, a, an increasingly radical demand. Yeah, it kind of brings us back to our discussion on the three-hour workday. Or I'm with Lucy Parsons. Two hours should be enough. <laughs> well, we can, yeah, we can debate just how short we want to make it. But yeah, you know, uh, we, we thought of that 100 years ago. So, you know. Yeah. Possibility, yeah. people. Um, and speaking of changing the way we view things that we tend to take for granted in life, Owen Jones at The Guardian uh, was uh, my main pick for the week. Um, he had a piece called Grotesque Inequality is Not a Natural Part of Being Human. That may sound like a truism to some people, but to some people it actually might be sort of shocking news. And uh, there might be some people who hear a phrase like that and they might be kind of disappointed. Um, he basically questions the prevailing assumption in the media and also in business that human beings are somehow by nature bad, right? Um, this idea of uh, whether you want to call it original sin or, um, you know, it's human nature to be evil um, or, or, you know, sort of the Hobbesian uh, vision of, of uh, human life being nasty, brutus, and short, um, leading us all the way up to uh, Wall Street, where we see, uh, you know, greed uh, being normalized and exploitative behavior is seen as something uh, kind of, you know, to be admired. Um, he he kind of turns all that on its head. He, he starts with what they say. So he says, by nature, it is argued we are in it for ourselves. Attempting to build an order where people's needs are prioritized over the interests of profit is doomed because it goes against the grain of what it is to be human, we're told. Inequality fosters the spirit of envy, as conservative London Mayor Boris Johnson put it last year, adding that greed is a, quote, valuable spur to economic activity. Um, he goes on to cite others who have claimed that uh, attacking capitalism is, quote, an attack on human nature itself, right? So we see this sort of shaping of... Um, you know, intellectual thought to kind of elevate uh, greed as some sort of central pillar of what it means to be human. And Owen Jones actually says, but wait, there's actually plenty of evidence uh, that this is not the case. And he actually cites the financial sector as evidence uh, that goes against this claim of human nature being by nature bad. He starts with our financial sector, right? Uh, plunged a swath of humanity into economic turmoil and is perhaps the epitome of all the negative traits associated with modern capitalism. But a study published in Nature suggests that it is the financial system that promotes dishonest behavior. In other words, the individuals involved are not innately dishonest. The culture they work in is to blame driving people to behave in a certain way. 
And so what he's saying is that these issues are systemic and they're structural, but they're not inevitable. And um, basically, a labor structure built on exploitation is, is not natural. We should stop thinking about it as such. And uh, he also cites other evidence showing that our capacity to brutalize is is not natural or inevitable, and it's at least matched by a capacity for reason and compassion and altruism. Um, we're not just motivated by this kind of doggy dog mentality, he argues. We need to look at you know things that allow us to recognize that human nature can also inspire um, civic and political action and social movements that can allow us to combat some of the uh, violent and evil things in our society. And he cites uh, actually another study in which subjects were tested about their willingness to sacrifice money in exchange for protection from electric shock. That might sound like a pretty, you know, basic material um, reaction, right? Um, You don't want to get shocked, so here, yeah, I'll pay not to get shocked. Um, But they actually compared the results across uh, different scenarios, and they found that um, people behave differently when people were asked asked to save themselves from shock and when they were asked to save other people from shock. And they found that, quote, on average, people sacrificed about twice as much um, money to save a stranger from getting a shock, uh, as they would give up to avoid being shocked themselves. Altruism is often framed as being disingenuous behavior, right? We only act in a selfless way because we believe that we will be rewarded in kind. But in this experiment, Jones says, nothing was gained here by acting selflessly to strangers. So moving beyond the experimental realm, he ends with this note, if we can build a society that encourages greed and sentiments which justify inequality, then we can also build a society that is nurturing solidarity, compassion, and equality. It has proven all too useful for defenders of our bankrupt order to portray it as the rational expression of humanity, but the opposing evidence is there, and it is stark. In a world where prosperity exists alongside such misery, it should give hope to those who believe there really is another way. We hope you had a good holiday. We hope you were... Black Friday is full of fun, protest, and not shopping. And we will be back in two weeks. As always, you can tweet at us at hashtag belabored. You can send us email at belabored at descentmagazine.org. And uh, we'll be back soon. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.